All right, let's take our Bibles. Let's go to First uh, Peter to work through our message. First Peter chapter 3, finally got out of chapter 2. And uh, I was like, all right, Merry Christmas. Let's talk about submission. All right. I'm just like, all right, <laughs> let the Lord has it for us, and we're, we're going to keep working through this book. Hopefully it's been an enjoyable, uh, enjoyable book to you. It's one of those ones where, you know, I've talked a couple times where I feel like the Lord beats you up with two-by-fours over, over your head. I feel like I can keep saying that. Pretty soon I'll be able to build a house with all the two-by-fours that the Lord uses to beat me up with. And even in this passage where you, you look and say, well, it, it just seems to be talking a lot to wives, there's a lot for us. A lot for everyone sitting here, whether you're single, whether you're a uh, man, woman, you're, it's, there's, there's meat in here for us to digest tonight. And I hope that, that you will as we, we will work through it and you won't just check out and as some of us were joking before, it's like, all right, we've heard these passages. We know what this is going to be about. But let's dive in. Let's, let's break it down and let's, let's see what this passage uh, just has for us and the Lord has for us tonight. Um, in, uh, in Disney World, some of you know that I like that place, uh, whether or not political affiliations or whatever, I like to go there, that's okay. There's a, there's a show that's there that most people like to go to because it's air-conditioned. When it's hot, you just like to go in an air-conditioned show, but I like it, I think it's cute, I like it for the music, and uh, it's, it's called Mickey's Philharmagic, and what it is is basically uh, Mickey Mouse is the great you know, maestro who's going to lead the orchestra in the symphony, and it's, all, it's neat because it's a number of the songs that you would hear done by, you know, in the symphonic way. Uh, and but the whole spoof on it is that Donald Duck, who is the the one who's supposed to set up all the instruments and get everything ready, decides that he's going to try and become the the orchestra leader. And he he uh, he gets Mickey's magic wand and he tries to do this. And he takes a role that's not his. And what it ends up being is total chaos in the in the middle of it. And when we look at this passage in First Peter, Peter's going to talk about two instruments for harmony in the home. And if these two instruments do not fulfill their roles, there's not going to be harmony. There's going to be discord. There's going to be difficulty. There's going to be uh, music that's, that's not pretty. And when we forsake our biblical roles and our responsibilities, the home can become a uh, musical disaster. And so as we, we look at the passage tonight, as we wrestle through it, I want us to look and say, okay, what, what is happening here? Harmony is about different notes being played simultaneously to create beauty. They're not the same. It's not one note always being say, played the same. It's not the, you know, the wife has to be identical to the husband and the husband identical to the wife, and that will bring perfection to the home. It's about two different notes playing simultaneously in a beautiful way to create to create that harmony. And Peter uses those two, two key instruments. He's going to talk about, in this passage, he's going to talk about the wife in verses 1 to 6, and he's going to talk to the husbands. And, you know, as we look at the passage, interestingly, we could talk about a number of items regarded from this passage. For example, Peter, Peter clearly lays out, though he's not going to make a big deal about it, the marriage is between a man and a woman. In verse 1, it's going to talk about you wives and then you husbands. In verse 7, it's going to do the same thing. It's going to talk about husbands and wives. And the words that he uses are very specific words. He uses for the, the word for woman, he uses the word gynecos, which we get our word gynecology from, for female, female doctors. It's, it's a specific word. The same thing for man. He uses the, the word andros, which we, even in our society, we talk about like different steroids or androsteny or different things with the word andros pertaining to a male. So he, he specifically talks about in this passage, even when he's talking husbands and wives, he's talking specifically male, 
female. He talks about the marriage is between two individuals. It's between the husband and their wife, the wife and her husband. So, so he lays out, and it's not the point that Peter's trying to make in this passage, but there are those little tidbits that as you're wrestling through in our society and in things that as it's going in the direction that it's going, you're saying, well, where do I go to say that, you know, marriage is between one man and one woman? Well, here's, here's a very simple passage that, that Peter just lays it out very quickly and very easily that you could highlight. Now, he's not seeking to give us this treatise on the definition of marriage, but rather he's telling us how these instruments in the family are to be playing in order to have harmony in the home. And so as we look at, look at this passage, what is, it, what is it talking about? Let's just start walking through the passage. He says, likewise, you wives be in subjection to your own husbands. Now, we can get that far and there will be trees upon trees upon trees killed in the theological realm of writing books and papers just on that phrase alone. What is the, for example, what does the likewise refer to? Is it referring to what's right in front of it, that, that wives are seen as the slave to the master? So is that what Peter's saying? Is Peter looking and saying, just like slaves are to the master, so is a wife to a husband? Don't think that's where he's headed, you know, but some will, will argue that. Is it saying that, well, is it right in front? Christ patiently endured the sufferings that he went through. So are the wives just supposed to patiently endure through their husband? I know there's moments where wives would probably say, yes, we are patiently enduring our husband. But is, is that what he's saying? Or is he referring back to the theme that Peter is talking about all the way starting back in verse, verse 13, talking with submission, again brings it up in the second part when he's talking about the slave submission. Now he's going to come to another of the family dynamics, the relationship dynamics that are evidenced in the church talking about submission. I believe that's where he's headed. That's what he's talking about. When he's saying likewise wives, he's referring to just like we're supposed to be submissive to the government, just like slaves are supposed to be submissive to the masters. In this relationship, the relationship of submission is the requirement of the wife to the husband. Now, the word that comes up here, subjection, it's not a bad translation for the word, and yet the Old English carries a little bit of baggage. When you hear that, you're just like, in today's society, you're like, is anyone in subjection to anybody? Can this be a right word? Why would, why would God tell us to be in subjection? Let's, let's flesh that all out a little bit before we just jump to a quick conclusion and say, oh, well, the, the, the Bible is just antiquated and we don't need to listen to it at all. Submission is a word that, honestly, it instantly brings up questions and concerns. I mean, it did, it did when we were talking about submission to government. I mean, none of us like those, those topics. So now it gets more nuanced, and now it's talking for, for ladies, for the wives in this situation. What is meant by submission? Who, why is it only directed to wives? Why isn't it said that husbands need to submit to their wives? Why does it, uh, what does it mean when the wife says, uh, sorry, does this mean that the wife has no say in marriage? Is that, what, is that what this is talking about? Does it mean that, well, it's just a cultural issue of the Bible, which is where the feminist perspective will argue that it was just cultural then, they needed to do it then, but we don't need to do it now because that was just then and we just need to dismiss all of all that. We, we need to be careful with that, what's called a hermeneutic of how we study the Bible because if we're just gonna dismiss everything as cultural, then you might as well just throw the Bible out and not, not bother with it at all. We have to look and discern and understand the principles of Scripture, which we've talked about in the last weeks, and then apply it to our, to our life. Does this mean that women are not equal in God's or Christianity's eyes? Are there, is, there a, is there an unlevel playing field that's there? 
Why is it even necessary to address this in the Bible? Why does Peter even feel the need? Is he just a, a, you know, we'll use the term again later, a misogynist who's just trying to keep women under his thumb? Is that, is that what he's trying to, trying to do here? I believe this passage has been, truthfully, before we go further, I really believe this passage has many times been abused in church history, both past and even in the, the recent present. It's not a passage, this is not a passage about oppression and the subjugation of women, okay? This is not a passage that says women should stay barefoot, pregnant, and in the kitchen. That's not what, that's not what submission is. That's not what this passage is saying. This passage is not saying that men are superior to women and that they should have no place in politics and society and business and education and they just need to stay under, underfoot in the home. Sadly, that's been taught in churches. Sadly, this passage has been used at times to, to argue some of that. I mean, you look at that picture there. That's, what, that's one of the pictures that popped up when I, I typed in biblical submission of women. That's, what, that's how people see it. And sadly, at times, it's, it's been taught that way. That you just need to do what I say because I am man, you are a woman, hear me roar. And that's, that's not Bible. That's not biblical submission. It's not what we ought to be teaching in it. So what does Bible culture teach? What, what was happening? Submission is transcultural. It's not just something for the Jews. It was not just something for just Christians in America. It is transcultural in the home, in the setting, in the marriage relationship. Peter recognized this. And as we'll see in a moment, the context that Peter is going to write to and talk to, it helps us to understand what's going on. So Peter writes from a Jewish perspective, but he's also writing to people who are what are called Greco-Roman or in living in Asia Minor, living in that, that Roman empire that has that Greek influence. So from a Jewish perspective, the society was patriarchal. And it did limit roles, the roles of women. There was, there was limiting uh, in a very restrictive way to a, to a lady's roles with regard to the right of inheritance, to their choice in relationship. The father was going to, to be very active in who their daughter was going to marry. The ability to pursue religious education, to participate in synagogue worship, very restrictive. Some of that established by God with, the, with temple worship. But overall, there was a number of things that were considered very restrictive. Even the freedom for, for a Jewish lady to move about, to go to different places, they had to have permission, they had to go out. Some of it, again, safety. You know, your husband wants to know where you're going because it was a little bit different in society. But it was still very restrictive from a Jewish perspective. Now, that's not to say that everything was bad for Jewish ladies. In fact, when you look at, at Judaism, it's different than our society, the Jewish culture, but it was much more flexible than even many of the Middle Eastern countries of that day and even today and how much, how much ladies can do. So we can't look back and just say, well, you know, Bible women, Jewish women, they just, they couldn't do anything. No, they could, but there was still, there were still many restrictions that were occurring upon, upon a lady and upon a wife in particular in that culture. Now in the Greco-Roman culture, which Peter is writing to these individuals, women as a whole were better off in terms of their freedom, the ability to go about, the ability to do different things. However, that did depend on the location they lived in. For example, those who lived in Athens, the women of Athens were nearly identical. You would think, well, Athens is this forefront, you know, really free-thinking society. And yet, historically, the ladies and wives had very similar restrictions as that of the, the Jews. Now, in Asia Minor, 
Asia Minor had many more opportunities to pursue their interests. The women had opportunities to engage in business dealings, to be involved in public office, to, to make dealings, and, and had a little bit more freedom. And remember, who is Peter writing to? The churches of what? Asia Minor. So now you have, you have ladies who naturally have a little bit more freedom. Now they're going to find a new freedom in Christ, and it's going to cause a little bit of a, a consternation, a little bit of a problem at home. And I know some of you may be looking and saying, well, in the Old Testament, I mean, like the, the Proverbs 31, she had the right, she had the ability, she went out and she made business dealings and she bought and she sold land. You know, what about the, what about the uh, daughters of Zalafahad in Numbers? They were able to gain inheritance. Remember, just because something was allowed did not mean that culture obeyed. I mean, does that ever happen where God says, do this and you can do this and people look and go, no, we're not going to follow after what God says? Do God's people ever do that? Yeah, they do. We do it all the time. Where God says, do X, Y, Z, and we do A, B, and C. So just because they were able to does not mean that the culture was following through on that. So as Peter writes to this culture, He's writing to individuals, especially to, to the ladies and to the wives in particular in this passage, where he's looking and he's saying, yes, there's some restrictions in your culture. Yes, some of you have some freedoms in your culture, but let's talk about when some of that comes in conflict with each other. How do you, how do you flesh that out? What should, you, what should you be doing? But in all of these cultures, there is one thing that's commonplace. I think this is important for us to understand some of what Peter is driving at in this passage in particular. The women were expected to follow the religion and the worship of their husband. They were expected, whatever your husband did for worship, that's what you were expected to do. Look at what Plutarch, who is a, a, a Greek philosopher, says. He says, a wife should not acquire her own friends, but should make her husband's friends her own. The gods are the first and most significant friends. For this reason, it is proper for a wife to recognize only those gods whom her husband worships, and shut the door to the superstitious cults and strange superstitions. So these, these ladies who are now finding Christ are abandoning their husband's worship. That is a cultural problem for them. It is going to be a dynamic that's going to bring discord in the home. There's going to be the potential of that, that lack of harmony. And through Christ and through the church, they found this new freedom under the Spirit that they did not necessarily enjoy in their society. They weren't allowed to go and worship the way that they desired to worship. And now Peter comes in, and he's going to be talking to these ladies who have now found Jesus Christ, who have now found an identity in the body of Christ, who are now part of the elect, who are part of the group that's worshiping on a consistent basis. And so they are going to come in, and what is happening in the culture at this time is these ladies are beginning to reject their husband's authority because they've said, well, we found a new authority in God. They're looking and saying, we're more spiritual than you, I have a new authority, it is God. So Peter realized that these actions, this difficulty that was happening in the churches in Asia Minor, was the attitude that these, these wives were going to start bringing cultural embarrassment and potentially damage the gospel because now they're starting to worship differently and because they do not want to submit to the authority of their husband, they're submitting to only the authority of God, it's causing difficulty in the home difficulty in the society, and it has the potential 
of damaging the gospel. Remember, we read all of this, these chapters through the lenses that Peter said back in chapter 2, verse 12, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, doing good, shall behold that, and they will glorify God in the day of visitation. So Peter is reading through and saying, hey, ladies, wives, your actions that you're taking are damaging the gospel. The way that you're treating your husband and your newfound freedom in Christ is damaging the gospel. So Peter feels the need. That's why it's addressed. Because he's seeing the problem that it is potentially causing with the world. So Peter does not simply pass on the opportunity to talk about it. In fact, Peter writing this may seem antiquated to us. We may look and go, wow, why would we talk about submission, subjection of a wife? It's just wrong. We shouldn't talk about it today. When Peter writes this and talks about it, it's actually quite revolutionary. He addresses the women of the day rather than ignoring it. The, the philosophers did not address ladies. You would not address the property that you owned in that day, your wife. Why would you deal with an issue? That's how you were treated. And now here is Peter, you know, the, the main guy, the big, the big honcho, the one who started at Pentecost. He's going to say, let's talk to, these, to the ladies. Let's talk to the wives. It was, it was a revolutionary thing. Peter addresses the women before the men even in the passage, highlighting that there's an important role that's here going on here. He doesn't say, all right, let's talk to the husbands because this is prayer. He says, ladies, let's talk. Wives, let's, let's, let's talk. He, he touches that first as a matter of importance. He does not demand simply that they go along with their husband's false worship, that with their husband's false gods. That is completely revolutionary. That is completely countercultural. It gave the wives the freedom, the opportunity to exercise their beliefs, their conscience, to be able to make a decision. Now he says how you go about this is important, but this was revolutionary. This was like women's, women's rights, like on, on fire for the moment. Here's, you know, the, the, the founder of the church. You know, I know it's Jesus Christ, but that idea of how people see Peter speaking to this entity. Peter does encourage them, though, to submit to their husbands wherever possible. But he says there is a limit. Just like every other time we've talked about submission, submission does not equal complete 1,000% obedience. It's the same exact word, hupatasso, that we've used talking about submitting to government, submitting to an employer, that there are times, yes, but when it goes against the conscience, against the word of God, there are limits to even in the home for the wife to be able to look at the husband and say, this does not match up with the word of God. I cannot follow you in this. Now, how you go about that, how that occurs, Peter's gonna address that. So he urges the ladies to live this respectable life in society so that they can maintain a good reputation for the gospel. He's not looking and saying submission is just to keep you under my thumb. He's looking and saying your actions, the way you interact with your husband has great influence in our society as people watch, as they observe your interactions, the way you treat, the way you honor, respect that husband in your life has implications for the gospel's sake. So Peter looks and says, it is, it is important. Now, what does this respectable reputation look like that Peter is speaking to? 
Submission for a wife to a, is for a wife to a husband, not to all men. Look at what he says. Likewise, you wives, be in subjection to your own husband. This is not we are men, you are women, you do what we tell you. That is not biblical submission. That is not biblical mandate. It is, if you are in a married relationship, wives, you are to submit to your own husband. That does not mean that I can look at any of you ladies and say, I'm a husband, so you have to submit to me. No, there's, there's only one lady in here who has that requirement placed upon her, and please pray for her because she's got to deal with me, okay? We'll get to me in verse 7, trust me. Um, there's only one person who has to endure that, and that's Sharon. That's not, it's not a across-the-board thing. It's to your own husband. Submission is directly placed within the context of marriage. We cannot, we cannot take that outside. I cannot look and say, if there's ever a, f- a female president, I can't say, well, she's a woman, I'm a man, therefore I won't submit to her. That's, that's not biblical. That's not what this passage is talking about. That's not what any of the passages on submission of wives to husbands is talking about at all. So, so don't jump there. Submission is an expectation. This is a command. And this is a command given under the inspiration of God. So it is an expectation of all wives. And it's super important, men. It is not our responsibility to ensure submission. Be it likewise, you wives, place yourself on your own. You place yourself in subjection to your husband. It is not... I look at my wife and say, do what I say, you must be in submission to me. That is not how the passage lays out. It is a heart attitude of my wife to me. It is not a demanding, domineering perspective of me to her. Submission is, it's a middle voice, it's a passive, it's something she does to herself. She places herself in Peter jumps the gun. He knows what's going to happen. But what if my husband is carnal? What if my husband is not saved? Do I still need to submit to him? And Peter, just like he's going to, he talks about with the, I mean, Nero's the governor or the head. He's not doing things right. You're supposed to submit there. What if your employer is not fair and ethical? He says, still submit. So now in this case, what if your husband is not? Look what he says. He says, And if any obey not the word, they may also, they also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wife. So Peter recognizes the reality that there will be some Christian women who will be in a situation where their husbands do not believe. They do not obey the word. They have not, they've heard it, but they have not placed themselves under it. They have not followed it. It could even be identified potentially with someone who's carnal, who maybe they're saved, but they're hearing the word, but they're not doing the word. And so he looks and he says, if any. So he's not simply speaking to only this situation. This is not, please don't make the argument. This is, again, one of those feminist arguments that says, well, what Peter is saying is that only if you have an unsaved husband do you have to submit to him. If you have a saved husband, you don't have to submit because this passage is talking about submitting to somebody who hasn't heard the word of God. It's not, he's not talking specifically to that. He's saying, first, wives submit. Then he says, and if you're in a situation that is hard, that is difficult, where your husband is not obeying the word of God, what should you do? 
How do you function? Here's the strategy, he says, to win, to win them to Christ. It's implied that these men have heard the gospel, but they've chosen not to believe it. They've chosen not to follow. They have not heard it and applied it into their life. So this is the case with many modern wives today. Their hearts break for their husband's salvation. Maybe some of you are here and you're in that situation where you long for your husband to be saved or you long for your husband to return to, to faith. Peter shows us how in the passage to, to gain that. He says that the most powerful word your, to your husband is the one not spoken, which is weird because when we think of the gospel, we think about you need to share the gospel, but it's implied that they've already heard it, they've, but they obey not the word. Now that they may without the word be won by the conversation of, your, of the wife. He says your attitude, your actions in your relationship will commend the gospel to both your husband and to your community. So why, why this attitude of respect? Why this attitude of submission to, to the leader in the home? Peter looks in this context and says, because it has huge gospel implication. It's very important to your unsaved husband, but also to the community around you. And he says, while they behold, he keeps going on, he says, while they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear, whose adorning let it not be that outward adorning of the plating of hair and of the wearing of gold or the putting on of apparel. He talks about your life, the attitude, the way in which you conduct yourself in the harmony for home. is to be this attitude of living purely, virtuously. That's the chaste conversation that you live in such a way that you do it out of a deep reverence for God. That's the idea of in fear. It's not in fear of the husband. Fear in the book of Peter, when he uses that word phobos, he's talking about in fear in relationship to God. So he directs it towards God and he's saying, why do you live this virtuous way? Why should you live this pure and honorable way? Why should you do this? You do it out of a deep motivation for God coupled with the fear, with the reverence for him. This is a lifestyle then, not a social conformity, which some want to argue. And they argue saying, well, it's just a social construct that it used to be the way it was. And the old men just trying to keep the good old boys club. So let's just get rid of that. And it was just a cultural thing. No, this lifestyle attitude that is expected of Christian wives, of respect, of honor, of meekness, of gentleness, of quietness, is motivated from a love for God. That's where Peter drives us to. That's what Peter, Peter says in this passage. And he says, so you, you have this idea of a chaste lifestyle in, in verse two. And then he says, you do this, this, this attitude, this, this lifestyle is to be demonstrated by prioritizing your internal beauty. Verses three and four, interesting verses, again, have been misappropriated at times whose adorning line up be the outward, the outward plating of the hair, the braiding, the, the really fancy hairstyles, the wearing of gold, the putting on of apparel. But let it be the hidden man of the heart in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God, a great price. The beauty of a Christian woman should be and should not consist and depend upon outward adornment. And I think this is really important. It doesn't matter if you're married or single. Ladies, this is a, this is a dynamic that, attitude that needs to be cultivated, a heart virtue that needs to be cultivated in our society and in our churches. 
And think about it this way. If, if we're not teaching our young women and our teen girls and our young girls how to develop these hard attitudes, when they stand up here and say, I do, does it just automatically appear? No. These are hard attitudes and virtues that we ought to be teaching and cultivating within the ladies of our church. Not because I want to stand up here and say, this is what, this is what God is saying the heart attitude needs to be. This is where we need to be. And Peter is promoting positive values. He's not prohibiting specific things. Sometimes we jump to this passage and we want to prohibit. He's not prohibiting and saying this can never happen. He's looking and saying, I want to promote something that's really important. Think logically for a second with me. If you're going to, if you're going to use this passage to argue that women should look very plain, that they should not do their hair, they should not wear earrings, they should not wear jewelry, they should not do the makeup, okay? Which has been used, this passage is used for that, right? Think logically for a second. Read, read the verse with me. What else should not happen at church? What? The putting on of apparel. So not only are you not supposed to be doing your hair and wearing makeup, but apparently if, if you're going to take that logic, carry that logic to its end. It doesn't work. Because that's not, that's not what Peter is saying here. Peter's not looking and saying you shouldn't be doing these things. He's looking and saying there's a, there's a more positive virtue. It's not just about how you look. It's about who you are. And that's what Peter's driving, and that's what we need to be demonstrating. He's saying, don't dress for the aspirations and the accolades of other ladies. That's what culturally they would do. They would, they would get themselves all done up so that all the other ladies would see how good they looked, how rich their husband was, how much they had. Anybody ever come to church and somebody hasn't commented on your new outfit and you get a little frustrated? That would never happen, I know. You know I do it. I'm like, man, I got a new suit. Nobody said anything about it. What's going on here? We, we do that. He says, don't dress for the attention of men. That's another part of this dynamic. That, that the, the ladies during this time, now think about it in the context. You have these ladies who are now saved, these wives who've just been saved. Their husbands are maybe not treating them so kindly because now they're following this cult. Maybe their husbands are looking and saying, you're going that way, and so they're going to start doing their own thing. They're going to start maybe finding a mistress on the side. They're going to start maybe treating her poorly. And now she comes to a church, and there's all these people, including other men, who are treating her with dignity, with respect, with honor. What is the potential temptation for that lady to start doing? Dressing so these really nice guys who've treated me with such honor and respect. My husband's treating me like trash, so I'm going to dress to gain their attention. And so as Peter's looking at the perspectives here, he's like, when you're coming to, to worship, when you're coming to live in your life, when you're coming to uh, function in the community, he's like, don't make it about how you look. Make it about who you are. Let the hidden man of the heart, that which is not corruptible. And I think it's important for us to take a moment as Americans, and even as, as men, single, married, to really think about the objectification of women and how it's been, it's tragic in our society. But to think about the fact that 
We need to be careful to curb our natural gravitation and longing for women so that it is not helping to facilitate the sexual objectification of women and what we look at and how we peruse the internet and how we watch movies and what we think is okay and how we do that and what we put up in our garages or we we sneak on the side. We need to be cautious. We need to be wise as godly men in that. Demonstrate biblical manhood and nurture our daughters. How do we help? We, We teach our young women that they are beautiful, that they are respectable, and they don't need to do X, Y, and Z. They don't need to give selfies of themselves dressed inappropriately to a guy just to win his favor, that that is not what beauty is. We as men need to be nurturing that. We need to be protecting them. When we see our daughters leaving the house, and it's like, uh, uh, not out of my house, you're not. Go back in and let's change that. That's not me being cruel. That's me protecting my daughter from becoming a sex object. That's, we need to, we need to be important. We should take that seriously as men to look and to elevate the importance of godly attitude over good looks. But I don't think it's just men anymore either. Sadly, I think ladies are part of the problem in this epidemic. The idea that we need to continually be trendy, that we always need to be buying the newest, that we need to make sure we get all these notices and likes. We don't even maybe do it by how we dress. It's just we put stuff out on social media because we need people to like us. And then what are we teaching our kids? That it's more important, not about who you are and what you do. It's more important than everybody likes you. And so then the next thing becomes a little bit more racy and the next thing becomes a little bit more potentially risque. We need to be training our ladies that it's not the dress that gains the praise of others. We need to be talking with them and encouraging them. The numbers of filters to, to look at our, our daughters and even our, our sons and to say, you don't have to change who you are. Don't spend 20 minutes adjusting your photos so you think you look perfect according to the world standard. You are beautiful in how God has made you and what is more beautiful about you is who you are, that you have this quiet and gentle, gentle and meek and wonderful spirit inside of you and that is going to be the most attractive thing to any man and any man who does not like that, he's not worth your time. That's what we need to be talking. That's what we use these passages for because that is what Peter is promoting. He's not saying it's about how you look, it's about who you are as an individual. While they behold your chaste conversation, coupled with this fear, Peter highlights the inner character qualities that should adorn a wife, that she should seek to adorn herself with. Look in verse four. He says, but let it be the hidden man of the heart in which is not corruptible, even the ornament, the the adorning of a meek and a quiet spirit, which in the sight of God is a great price. These virtues are the garment which any Christian woman can wear with pride. That they have this idea, the heart, the real you, the inner you. It is not corruptible, the Bible says. The hair's gonna go. It may gray. It's gonna thin out. You can't, you can't braid it the way you used to. Clothes are gonna change. They're gonna fade. They're gonna go, go away. They're gonna get out of style. Gold can rust. In that time, it could. In our time, it's a little bit more pure. But it could, go, it could be stolen. It could be taken away. But these virtues are incorruptible. And these are the virtues which we are to seek to instill into the ladies of our church and into the young ladies of our church as they are being nurtured in the, the wonderful admonition of the Lord. Peter highlights these inner qualities and he says it's the meek, the quiet spirit. The meek is the idea of the gentle, the humble, the individual who is friendly, does not attack back. They have their strength and they keep it in check. 
The quiet spirit is one who is calm and peaceful, who's not restless, rebellious, or bad-tempered. Those are the hard attitudes. And I, and I understand if, if you're in a situation where you have a husband who does not aid you in that, that's hard to be that. That's difficult, and yet Peter says you can do it. You can cultivate these attitudes. And again, that attitude of the meek and the quiet spirit ought to be single, married, divorced, you, whatever category you want to place yourself in, that should be the heart attitude of a Christian woman. Those are the virtues which Peter says to be cultivating specifically in this situation, especially for somebody who's in a situation where their husband's not following after the word of God because he's like, that's the type of woman who's going to win them back, who's going to the game. This is the kind of godly behavior that will attract a husband to faith. And what's cool about it to me is God sees the importance. He's like, this is something of great price. God says this is important. A wife who sees these inner qualities as priorities will see greater harmony in the home. These qualities to a wayward or an unbelieving spouse are far more attractive than the argument and attacks on all of his pagan morals. And that's what Peter is telling the ladies of Asia Minor. You want to see your pagan husband one to Christ? Demonstrate these God-honoring virtues. But I, th- I believe it, it transcends far more than just that situation. It is those attitudes that help to bring harmony into our home. Peter reminds the believers that these qualities are nothing new. He goes on, he's going to give these illustrations. He's going to talk about the women of faith, these Old Testament women. He says in verse 5, For after this manner, in the old time, the holy women also who trusted in God adorned themselves, being in subjection unto their own husbands. He's saying this is nothing new. This is not something that I just made up on the spot. This has been something that has been in cultures all around the world. He's not specifically speaking to one specific group, but he's simply referencing many of the Old Testament ladies who adorn themselves in this way. And so Peter looks and says, hey, it's a perspective on this issue. What does he say? He says, to think about it, holy manner that these ladies demonstrated is one that trusts God. In old times, they trusted in God, which does it not take, if, if we're really honest, men and ladies, does it not take trust in God for you to place yourself in submission underneath a sinner who can be hot-headed, who can be stubborn, who can be arrogant, who can be annoying? How many other adjectives do you want me to name for myself? <laughs> but uh, we just, does it not take a woman of faith, to look and go, God, this is what you have called me to do. I will put my trust in that because that's what you've said to do. It takes great faith, great trust. A holy manner is one that adorns themselves with the attitudes and the virtues. It says that they they not only trusted God, but they adorn themselves and that gives the foundation for them to say, because we trusted God and because we've shown respect and uh, uh, respect to, to the leadership, we can be in this holy manner of submission to our husbands. It is, a, it is a heart attitude that they look and they say, we can follow after. These ladies did not submit because they thought their husbands were superior. That is not what is being driven at. They submitted because they trusted and feared God. Because God, the divine sovereign of the universe, said in the role of the home, 
the role of the wife is one of submission. And so therefore, because God has said it, not because a preacher has demanded it, not because a husband has intimidated me with it, but because God Almighty has told me that this is how I'm supposed to live, I will place myself in that position. That's completely different than a misogynist man viewed, this is what we tell you, therefore women, you do it. This is the heart attitude of Old Testament saints, of New Testament saints, of church believers today that says this is the heart attitude that I have because I trust and I fear Almighty God, Him alone. He says, even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Now, this, you know, this is one of those verses where it's like, all right, call me Lord. You heard it, all right? You know, the Sharon should be Lord, Lord Art, Lord Art, Lord. That's, that's, not, that's not where he's going with it. Most people actually believe that he's not even talking about anything specific to the life of Sarah. Although I personally think there is an allusion to Genesis 18. Do you remember Genesis 18? The angel stands outside and says, hey, by the way, Abraham, you're going to have a kid. I'm, I'm old. Not going to happen. Hey, Sarah, we're going to have a kid. <laughs> right. She laughs, at, you know, laughs about it. And what does she say? In that passage is where she looks and says, how is my Lord going to be able to do this when he's so old? She, she understands physically. She understands all, all of the ramifications. But she calls Abraham Lord in that passage. It's not, a, it's not this, oh, you're the, the mighty despot ruler of my life and you know, I'm just a thief in your kingdom and you are the Lord. That's, that's not what is happening. We have to be careful that we don't take our, our, our perspectives on words and read them back into the, the, the Bible. We need to understand the biblical terms in the biblical context and understand what they were talking about. She's calling her Lord, calling him Lord. He, he really does that because it was a title of respect. It was a title of obedience. It was of one where it was her placing herself in a position to say, good sir, my husband. It was often used synonymously with husband in the, in the, in the Old Testament writings. So it's not, it's not him looking and saying, king, you know, little, little surf, nothing down here. It's, it's Peter looking and saying, she even recognized, the, the, the matriarch of all of this recognized that there was a, a leadership structure that was placed. So we are considered, it's interesting, he, he goes on in verse six, whose daughters you are also as long as you do and are not afraid with any amazement. We're considered joiners with Abraham, Romans 14, Galatians chapter three. And he talks to the ladies here and he's saying, you're part of this daughterhood of Sarah. This, this daughterhood, and what does he say? It's a daughterhood that is doing right. Remember, this is a theme in Peter, especially in submission. He's talking about constantly doing right, to do, do honorably, to live morally. He says, who, uh, as long as you do well. He's saying you're part of this daughterhood, so, so do what's right. That's the, that's the history, that's the legacy, that's the litany that's been passed down. And he says, and you're doing it because it is right, not because you're giving into the intimidation. That's the idea when it talks about in the King James here that, and not afraid with any amazement, it's, you're, not, you're not doing it because you're fearful by intimidation. It's not because someone is lording it over you and saying, thou must. You're doing what's right because it is right. And that's why Sarah submitted to Abraham. That's why he, she honored him. 
because it was right, and she wasn't doing it out of fear, out of concern for her life. She was doing it because it was the right attitude to do. Peter does not expect women to fear her husband or to fear the social implications because in that society, if you weren't submitting to your husband, you could face a lot of heartache, a lot of hardship. He's, like, he's looking at them and saying, you're in new, new, new water. Live this way, but do it with respect. Do it with gentleness. Do it with humility as you do it. He's like, don't, don't fear. And I think it's, a, it's a really interesting how Peter is going to, to change direction here. He's going to get to the end of talking to the ladies about submission, and he's going to look and he's saying, don't, don't be fearing your husband or fearing society, whether they're using physical, psychological, emotional intimidation tactics. He's saying, do this, have this heart attitude because it is right before God. Sarah was the example of submission that he has, and submit whenever possible for as long as you can, but remain ultimately faithful to Christ. That goes back to the concept of submission and obedience that we've talked about over the last few weeks. You do what you're able to, but if it violates your conscience according to the word of God, you're not required to obey. But you need to, once again, make sure that it's not just because I don't want to do it and I want to be stubborn and I just want to stick my foot in and just be that person. The heart attitude is one that must look according to the word of God and remain faithful. And now Peter uses this idea of being fearless to turn the corner. In the face of intimidation, he transitions to us, guys. Interesting that he would use that idea of intimidation, of lording it, pushing it down, causing fear to get what we want, to use it. And he says, okay, as the second instrument in the home, here's, here's how we need to live. He looks and he says, you know, hey, it was easy for us to or easy for husbands during that day to abuse their wife sexually, physically, emotionally, and even use the threat of divorce as an intimidation tactic to get what they wanted. And that was commonplace in Bible times. It's even commonplace now, sadly. It shouldn't be, but it still, it still is. So Peter exhorts Christian husbands to live culturally different. Just like he encourages the wives to live culturally different, he's saying to us as men, live culturally different. Don't use those tactics but rather we need to honor our wives in our words and in our deeds and not exploit them with our power, not use our words, not use our physical prowess, not use our intimidation tactics to get what we want, but rather to live differently than our culture. You know, if our culture would learn this principle of how men are to treat women and to treat their wives and the, all the, the ladies that they're deciding to have babies with, man, we, we'd have a little bit of a different society. We would learn to see, we would have men who were standing up to be men, Christian men who were, who were living as the husband should live. So Peter looks and says, husbands are to live and lead considerately. He says, likewise, you husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor to the wife as unto the weaker vessel and being heirs together of the grace of life that your prayers be not hindered. He says, live with them considerately. In other words, have the personal insight into your wife that leads you to a loving and considerate care of them, to learn about them, to know them, to live in an intelligent and reasonable manner, seeking to meet her needs and her wishes. And that's going to be different from each of you. Sharon and I were sort of joking, not joking, but it was in the midst of a conversation this week. And I'm like, I keep reading that this is what I need to do. And she's like, I don't need that. 
I don't need this little, you know, type of banter and talk. I just want this. And I'm like, you know, you would think after 20 years I would have known that. But, you know, some of us are really thick. And, and, you know, we learn. And it's constantly learning to be intelligent in relationship to our wife, to lift her up consistently, to be honoring her. It's more than a simple admiration for our wives. Giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel. Honor does not run her down. Honor is shown by our deeds and our words, which are used to demonstrate love. Honor carries with it the idea of spending of time and money for someone or something precious. It's looking and saying, this is cherishable and I'm going to invest my time and my wealth into that because I want to, that whatever it is, in this case it's a wife, I want my wife to know that she is honored, that she is precious, that I will invest in her and I want to invest in her. So I live considerately with her. I understand her. I want to lift her up and exalt her, not to be running her down, not to be tearing her down. Now, I know what some of you ladies are probably thinking right now. This is not fair. We got six verses, they get one. Okay, why, why is that? Think culturally for a second. Think what's happening. Peter, Peter looks and says, in three or four of the verses, if you're in a situation where your husband is not following Christ, this is how to live. Remember what we read about when a husband would be converted or a husband would follow after the religion, what would, the wives, what would happen with the wife and the household? They would what? They would follow that. They would follow him. So the, the commonplace, the even dynamic of the wife typically not being saved or not following the husband would not be common. So Peter doesn't even address that in this. He just looks and says, here's, here's the man. You take that section out in verses 3, 4, 5 there, or 2, 3, and 4, you're, you're getting pretty similar wording in what we're working at. So it's not, don't look and go, oh, see, Peter just wants to spend more time on them and, and give us a hard time. He's trying to help the, the Christian ladies who are battling through a, re, a real issue in their lives. Why should we as husbands treat our wives with loving and considerate leadership? Because as Peter says, though they may be physically weaker, they are our spiritual equals. He looks and says they are our joint heirs with us. This is the basis for this radical countercultural treatment of our wives. To look and to say they themselves are heirs together of the grace of life. They receive the same grace we do. They're, they're, they're recognized as an equality, an equal. Their society didn't recognize that, but God recognized it early on. And is equality truly compatible with submission? I would argue absolutely yes. Ephesians chapter five, we're not gonna take a lot of time, but you can go there and read through it. But just remember, submission is grounded in theology, not cultural accommodation. Not the culture said they had to do it, but it's grounded in theology. As humans, we're, we share the equalness as men and women in the image of God, the same access to salvation. We share the same destiny, etc. And so considerate leadership and godly submission are different roles in the home, and yet they don't cancel out our equality in Christ. Because think about the picture that he uses in Ephesians 5. He talks about Christ being the head of the church, and then he talks about that Christ is equal with God, and then that Christ at times submits himself to God. If Christ is equal with God and he can submit himself to God, if, they're not, if you're going to say if someone submits they're not equal, then what you do is you take away the equality of Jesus Christ and God the Father. 
because Jesus Christ submitted himself to God. So he uses, Paul uses that argument in Ephesians 5 to say, you can still submit, and yet there's still an equality in the home. Because we fail, men, if we fail in our loving, considerate leadership of lifting up our wives, Peter just hits us between the eyeballs. And he looks at us and says, your prayers will be hindered. If you do not treat your wife with the dignity and the respect and the honor and to live with her considerately, then your prayers ain't going anywhere. They will be hindered. They will be thwarted. So as we look at submission and we wrap up and we just sort of put it all together, some quick, some quick thoughts, and I would encourage you, if those of you who are into uh, enjoying reading articles, it's an article called uh, Wives Like Sarah and the Husbands Who Love Them. It's some, something similar to that, and they have a number of these points in it, but really good article. If you just Google that much, you'll get it. It's, a, it's about a 20-minute read, but it's a really good read. Submission is not putting your husband in the place of Christ. Christ is the head. He doesn't, I am not higher than Christ in Sharon's life. Submission is not giving up independent thought. Ladies should still be thinking. Wives should still be influencing. They should not be giving up efforts to try and influence us, to guide our families, to guide their husband. They're they're still interacting and still talking and still being part of that dynamic, talking to their husband and influencing, saying, here's what I believe God would have us to do, but if you make a different decision, I will follow that. A wife uh, is not a wife giving in to every demand of her husband. That is not biblical. That is not biblical submission. I do not have the ability to tell my wife whatever she's supposed to do. That doesn't match up with, with scripture. Submission is not based upon a lesser intelligence or a competence. I can't look and say, because I'm a man, I have some sort of great... We all know, I mean, you've seen how my wife works. She's far more gifted in many, 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 many areas than I am. I am far less competent. It is not an issue of men are more competent or more intelligent than ladies. Submission is not being fearful. It's not being intimidated. And men, we ought not to put our wives in a position where we make them feel that way. We should not, we should not be in that situation. It is not inconsistent with equality in Christ. We are equals, all made in the image of God, with the ability to stand equal at the, the foot of the cross. Submission is an inner quality of gentleness that affirms the husband's role of leader in the home. Why? Because that is how God, the sovereign God of the universe, who has established the roles in the home. He has established the husband as the leader, the wife to be the loving one who comes along and submits to the husband's leadership. It does involve obedience. Sarah obeyed Abraham. There is a dynamic where the husband may give some directives and the wife will obey. But it doesn't mean if I give directives that are sinful and wrong that my wife must obey them and must follow them. I also need to be careful that I'm just not giving whatever objectives and directives I want just because I get what I want to get. I have to be in a loving relationship, learning my wife, learning her desires so that we can mutually work together and have beautiful harmony in our home. It is an acknowledging of authority that is not totally mutual. Christian submission is not mutual submission. The Bible never calls the husband to submit to the wife. There are places where it talks about submitting to one another. Even in Ephesians 5, it talks about that. But it is not a, an equal 
submission to each other. There is a dynamic in which the husband is the head according to the scriptures of the home, just like Christ is the head of the church. So submission recognizes those things. As a husband, considerate leadership is not mean, harsh, or demanding. It is none of those. It is not implying a sharing of leadership. I am to be the leader of my home. I am supposed to set the spiritual trend. I am supposed to set the dynamics for my home. Leadership is not implying a lesser importance of my wife in my home. She is extremely important, and I need to cherish and love and tap into those resources and that knowledge. That is my responsibility. And leadership is not optional. I must do these things, because if I don't, my prayers, my spiritual life is hindered. Considerate leadership is not learning to understand your wife. Uh, I, I should have taken the knot off there. <laughs> I, I'm, like, I'm like reading, I'm like, no, that's not. It should say Christian leadership is dot, 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 learning to understand your wife. It is learning to seek to know your wife's desires, her goals, her frustrations, her desires, her strengths, her weaknesses, both physically, emotionally, spiritually, which to do that, it's gonna be done through understanding God's word, through reading it, having that spiritual time. But it's also gonna be figured out by having unhurried time of private fellowship together with your wife, spending time getting to know her, learning, understanding who she is, and affirming with words in both private and public places about her honor, her dignity, the reverence you have for her, the love that you have for her, cherishing her. It's about taking time. It's about taking money for, for you to meet some of her wishes and her desires. To me, it's challenging to look at all these different dynamics and say, okay, there's a lot for us to work on and how we live, how we interact, how we think even about people in society. And as, as specifically in this passage, the relationship of those who are married. Our spouse must be carefully cherished if we wish to maintain a close relationship with God. That's what Peter's driving toward. Those ladies who wanted their husbands to have a close relationship with God. Those husbands and wives who desire to have a, a cherished relationship, one where their prayers are not hindered one where they can lift each other up and be honored by God. It takes accepting the roles that God has placed in our lives and faithfully following them. So God, I pray that you would help us to look at your roles for the home biblically. Lord, help us to have harmony in the home by accepting the roles and living by them. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its profitability. Help it to just be challenging to our lives. In your name we pray, amen. Thanks so much, you're dismissed.